Hey everybody, my name is Jared, and I have this weird thing where words and names stick in my head all the time. I don't know, like Jules Verne, Lawrence Olivia. I'm sure you're the same way, Josh. We know these names, but we have absolutely no idea who these people are, right? I, I, I know who they are. Wait, no, not both of them, though. There's no way. <laughs> I know who both of those people are. Okay, who's Jules Verne, then? Jules Verne is one of the first truly famous science fiction uh, writers from the 1900s. Or from the okay, 1800s. but Lawrence Olivier is not a person, right? Isn't that just like the name off a television show I remember? He was an actor from the heyday of film, starring Othello. Ooh, okay. I, I have no way to back up whether that's true or not. I really don't. That's um, so what we what do we do we just sit here and talk about how badly I am at remembering who people are or what do we do here? No, you're actually gonna have to remember who some people are today, Jared. Shoot. So what we do here at the Lighter Side Podcast is we take a text. This can be anything. It can be a song. It can be a documentary. It can be a podcast. It can be a book. It can be a YouTube video. We take some sort of artifact of media or of someone's thought or art. And we break it down because we find it incredibly important. But the way we break it down is pretty simple. First, we're going to give you the background context, who the person was, who produced it, why they produced it, maybe some information there. Then we're going to go through a brief summary, but not so much that you don't want to check out the text for yourself. Uh, then we'll get into all of our loud opinions and why it is so darn important that you check it out. Last but not least, we try on the Lighter Side podcast to leave you with some sort of silver line that you can take with you. Thus, the Lighter Side. Absolutely, and today we are super excited because we are doing one of our favorite human beings on the planet. Jared, who are we doing today? Lawrence Olivier, right? <laughs> oh boy. Wow, what good intro music. I actually, I haven't heard the intro music at all. Is it any good? Um, well, you know what? I would love to tell you I spent hours composing it but I found it on a free website, and it's good enough. Hey, that should be the new slogan of our podcast. That's good enough is good enough. Um, all right, so we are not talking about Lawrence Olivier today, thank goodness. Not only because I don't know who that is, uh, but also because of the awesome chance and opportunity we have to talk about Malcolm freaking Gladwell. Not his middle name, I understand that. Um, but one of the most brilliant... Journalists, nonfiction writers, uh, I would say our world has probably ever seen. We'll say that after he, he dies, of course, and everyone's lauding him with all this praise. But for right now, just one of the most influential, important writers that we have um, hosts the brilliant podcast, Revisionist History, which is actually what we're going to be talking a little bit more about today, one specific episode off of there. Um, but we've talked about him before. We have talked about him on our YouTube show. We have talked about him on the podcast before we kind of changed formats here. And we knew very early on we were going to have to showcase one of his uh, podcasts to talk about. And I think we picked a doozy. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, you know, for those of you who don't know his podcast, Revisionist History, one of the most popular podcasts. Our in the world. In the world. Probably. We don't have the stats on that, but we think that's true. <laughs> We certainly love it. That's uh, that's that's true. And today we're going to be talking about one specific episode of his podcast called Malcolm Gladwell's Twelve Rules for Life. Now, this of course is a play off of all of these, uh, you know, modern intellectuals and and uh, people writing these, you know, self help books slash intellectual books uh, with their rules for life. Yeah, probably most famous to internet culture is Jordan Peterson's Twelve Rules for Life that he wrote. Right. Um, I don't know if he's making fun of Jordan Peterson or not. I like to think he is. We, uh, we, we do like to think he's making fun of Jordan Peterson because Jordan Peterson seems to, at all times, to slightly be making fun of himself. Um, not that he hasn't occasionally said anything smart, but we're not saying we can't quote a single thing. That, never mind. So let's carry on with talking about a person we do love. Uh, so Malcolm Gladwell. So just a little bit of background context on him. Um, I have learned and forgotten all of the different things he did before he got to The New Yorker, but most people know him for writing really, really intricate, detailed, psychological, and also sociological uh, pieces for The New Yorker. He's gone on to write um, just New York Times bestseller after New York Times bestseller in the nonfiction realm, um, David and Goliath, Talking to Strangers, um, The Tipping Point, Outliers, so many great books. I have had the chance to read them all. Josh hasn't, but he's planning on reading uh, most of them. It, it, it's 
it's there's no word to describe how talented he is. Um, but just how his brain works is what's so interesting, and that's kind of why we honed in on Malcolm Gladwell's 12 Rules for Life. Okay, so that's a little bit of context on him. Josh, provide our listener, hope, <laughs> shoot low, shoot low, right? <laughs> provide our listener with, uh, like, some context for this episode. So what is happening? Why is it called 12 Rules for Life? Other than the fact he's making a, right. what other joke is he making? Right. I mean, it, it, so 12 Rules for Life is a bait and switch, right? It is absolutely not Malcolm Gladwell's 12 Rules for Life. He, he, he points out, do he makes, the, do you think the origin of bait and switch might have been <laughs> that you just on a hook, like you put your bait, right? Then you put it in the water and then all your buddies like walk away. And then, like, you come back and you take it out of the water, you take the bait off, and then you just you just put a fish, like, literally right on there. And then... You know, I, I know that's what it... I mean, that, that, that's the 100%. Yeah, totally. Don't, I, don't Google it. And I'm also a really good fisherman. <laughs> I'm winking at him if you can't tell. Sorry, keep going with the 12 Rules for Life. Well, anyway, back to the old bait and switch. I mean, Malcolm Gladwell makes a couple of, you know, cute jokes about uh, the fact that he has a very particular person and does some very particular things, like only drinking a couple different types of beverages. Yeah, let me see if I can get them. Water, red wine, um, some sort of combination of espresso and milk, and that Is might... he a tea drinker? Tea, maybe, maybe but I don't know if tea it counts. Might not be. With uh, the water, uh, I, I think maybe it, maybe it's three, it's three or four. Yeah, um, regardless, um... <clears throat> so essentially, he but he's saying those aren't rules for life. He doesn't care what you drink. You can drink whatever you want. However, he does have one rule for life. Only one rule for life. And that rule is pull the goalie. Three words. So much sports, just beauty in that. Pull the goalie. Right. And as big sports fans ourselves, especially hockey... Uh, it's an interesting premise, very interesting premise, and he comes through with backing it up with very uh, succinct statistical uh, data. Distinct, baby. So um, the uh, the entire point of it is really cognitive dissonance, right? I mean that you have we have some different analysis of it, but yeah. cognitive dissonance. Yeah, is I, have a big... a, I have a correct analysis of it, and Josh <laughs> has one that sounds really smart. No, no, we we we, we I think understand the same thing that he's getting at right. in both cases, um, but. You warned me before we started this, we had to go into some detail for our listener uh, about what pull the goalie actually means in a normal context. So, so let me do that for a second. Yeah. Um, in the world of, and it's actually, you can do this in soccer too, but in, in the world of hockey, um, you are able to take at any, any point in the game, your goaltender who protects the net, that red post thing with the, with the wire mesh, you can take him off the ice and get one other player, one normal player with the thin stick. You know what I'm talking about? The thinner <laughs> stick. Um, so that gives you a huge offensive advantage because there are more men on the ice when you're on the offensive side of the rink than they have to defend you. The problem is that your goal is sitting completely wide open on the other side of the rink. So huge risk reward thing. Um, basically, Coaches only do this in the last 90 seconds to two minutes of a hockey game. Right. And maybe, uh, maybe three at the max if they're down by two goals or something yeah, like that. Yeah, maybe, maybe three minutes and maybe like four minutes I've seen if they're down two or three goals. Like, right. like it's a totally different thing. Um, but when you're down one goal, especially if you, you're a competitive hockey team, you will not see that coach pull them until that 90 second mark or something like that. So we're talking like a minute and 30 left. And do uh, you see how I needed to do that math for the audience member? Good math. No, sometimes I do that so I can think of what I'm going to say next <laughs> after. Um, but that is not what Malcolm Gladwell is referring to. He's not saying his rule for life is to just pull the goalie like goaltenders are pulled all the time. He doesn't he, want to be a hockey coach. No, 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 no. He's, he, he actually is basically saying you should pull the goalie. That's almost like his real rule for life is that you should pull the goalie at a slightly different time. And... To explain that, I'm going to toss it back over to my illustrious brother. So, so what's what's his point, and who are the people who help make his point? Um, he just mouthed an expletive because he closed his phone 
when he was oh, supposed to have the information up and ready Maybe. because we're trying to seem professional, dang it. Right, yeah, so I may have lost their names, but regardless. So the point is, uh, Malcolm Gladwell got in contact with a couple of guys from New York, big hockey fans and big nerds. The, in their free time, they like to do math about random stuff. In their not free time, they are very successful financial advisors who do some real good math on that stock market there. You know who I think they might have been? Who might have been? Lawrence Olivier and Jules Verne. <laughs> um, we're going to go with no. The one's first name is Cliff, right? And then the other yeah. is Aaron. It's Cliff Aaron and Aaron. Brown. Cliff, Clifford Rasmus? or No, no. It's something e like that. It's even weirder than that. Uh, if I find it, I'll tell you. But the statistics that they did are the important part. So they did the math to where it would uh, be beneficial or where teams should pull their goalies. Yeah. And uh, what they found out... Off the rink. You mean when? Yeah, when. Right, when. <laughs> right when. exactly. He, at, he's, at what, he's struggling, folks. He's at trying. what point in the game? So the math that they did concluded that the average team, if you are down by one goal, it's most beneficial to pull your goalie with five minutes still left in the third period. Almost double the amount of time that... Uh, you, ordinarily, right. That, someone, that, that a team would, would typically pull the goalie, right. and uh, and they continued the math to if you were down two goals, and at which point they concluded that you should be pulling your goalie with eleven minutes left in the game. And they, I mean, they broke it down to the exact second where it becomes statistically beneficial for you to pull the goalie. It's eleven minutes in some seconds, but the point is that's over half of a of the third period left, which would be absolutely insane. If a team, you know, if our team, the Pittsburgh Steelers, pull or Pittsburgh Penguins, pulled the goalie with the way they're playing right now, they should give it a shot on the ice, man. <laughs> Steelers should uh, pack it in, put some skates on. No, but okay, let's actually let's actually hold off on that. Okay. Why why it's crazy for one second? So you actually convinced me. One and this is why it's crazy. Ha! Funny. Uh, that was good because I said a second. You actually <laughs> counted one. So. I think you, you convinced me that it was important to tell the audience this, so I'm going to try to channel you through me, even though you're here and could just channel yourself. The, the, it, it's important to note here, this isn't like a suggestion, right? That This has been measured over, over dozens of years of analysis on these statistics. Yeah. I mean, you could show these to, you know, Harvard professors, you know, coaches, players, an eighth grade player, like it doesn't, it doesn't matter how smart you are, how long you've been around the game, everyone could look at these numbers and say, oh, we have a higher chance to come back in this hockey game if we pull the goalie at 11 minutes and like 20 seconds, or if we pull the goalie at five minutes and we're down one goal. Like the, the math is there right. on the page. Right. And maybe even easier to understand for our audience um, who might be more football fans or maybe passing football fans where you watch on Sundays when uh, the rest of your family goes crazy, um, the two-point conversion. Right. So last couple of years, the NFL has moved back the extra point, meaning that after you score a touchdown, that extra point to get you from 6 to 7, 13 to 14, 20 to 21, 27 to 28, 34 to 35. <laughs> Is that enough? Was that enough examples? I think that was enough. Okay. So that extra point has been moved so far back that it's actually affected its accuracy. The accuracy of that kick has gone down tremendously. And even before that, if someone did the math, and people have done the math, the average football team scores on a two-point conversion over 50% of the time, meaning that throughout the course of a 17-week, 16-game season, you are way in the right, and it's going to be super beneficial to go for two more on every single touchdown. Right. Every touchdown you score will get you more points if you go for two. Right. Statistically, at the end of the season, you will end up with more points than if you didn't do it. Right. And again, you could show these numbers to a, let's go Yale this time, a Yale professor, <laughs> a high school coach, a fourth grade football player. Like, it does not matter. They would agree, oh gosh, yeah, we will score more points if we do this. It, it's just, it's plain as day. It's that simple. It's mathematically true. And what's so weird is the fact that I wouldn't do it, you wouldn't do it. Right. The fact that, I mean, we might do it knowing this information, but like we wouldn't do it without having been indoctrinated by Malcolm Gladwell. I mean, that's, right. that's the crazy part about this because he talks about a psychological concept that you are, I think, about to get into when you called it crazy called agreeableness, where like these coaches in that moment... They think they're thinking about winning, but they're also thinking about not look like an absolute, not embarrassing their team by pulling the goalie with seven minutes left and then getting four goals scored on them and losing by eight. 
right. you know? I mean, that's, that's sort of, that's I think where you were going to get to, but I wanted to talk about how mathematically true it was first. Right. I mean, there, there are two, there are two psychological principles you can take out of that. Malcolm focused very heavily on the agreeable, the agreeableness, because that's just him. And it, 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 it really, I mean, it's, I'm not saying it, is any different than the one I'm going to point out, but they are both relevant in two different ways. Agreeableness is essentially just like these coaches know, if you know this statistic, but you care more about being hated by your fan base or being looked in a poor way by your owner, fan base, whatever, you're not going to do it, right? I mean, you're just not going to do it. And then there's the other thing of cognitive dissonance which is, you can tell me, dude, you're going to end up with more points if you just go for two every time. And I'm going to be like, well, as somebody who's played 30 years of football, coached, you know, 10 years of football, I, I can't see that. You know, I just cannot believe what you are telling me or what you are showing me. Yeah. And that, that's the cognitive dissonance aspect to it. And they both are super fascinating because, like we said, you know, it's that immediate rec you know, recognition like, oh, my goodness, no, I would never... I've been watching hockey my entire life. I would never pull a goalie with 11 minutes left in, you know, a playoff game down by two goals, right? You would never do that. Yeah. And, and it's so hard, you know, the, what he's talking about, um, a couple coaches, including, you know, the coach of our team, Mike Tomlin, he... Oh, I love Mike Tomlin. I do love Mike Tomlin. I mean, I'm not sure how good he is as a coach, but gosh, he seems like just a... <laughs> I, I just love how I, he holds a line and he sticks to it. I love it. <laughs> but he... Uh, he and a lot of the, co not a lot, but a couple other coaches were right on board with that statistical thing. And they did it for like half of a season. And now not only does nobody do it, you know, how many years, a few years later, but no, we don't, we don't even hear about it anymore. But, you know, did the statistics change? No. The answer is no. I mean, the, 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 it's still 100% true that teams make it uh, two-point conversions more than 50% of the time. Well, and then it's even it's even worse than that because you don't even need to do it every time. There's a, there's a really simple mathematical trick to play the game uh, for yourself, which is go for two the first time you score a touchdown. Because if you go for two the first time you score a touchdown and you get it, you don't need to go for two again the rest of the <laughs> right, game. You, yeah. You've earned your point. You got the extra point. And then if you go for two the next time, well, the numbers say you'll probably convert it. Now, again, that's defensive and offensive dependent, but right. now you've scored two touchdowns, gone for two on both of the first ones. Mathematically, over the course of a 16-game season, that should work itself out. Right. It, it, that, that's what's mind-boggling about this. You don't even need to commit to some sort of go for two every single time. Right. Coaches refuse to do this even though they know going for two the first time up, especially when you can practice that play all week. Right. Like, nobody does it anymore. Right. I mean, that's the other thing from, I mean, we're kind of drifting away from the, the psychological and a little just more to the sports aspect of it, but teams don't put that much practice into two-point conversions, you know? I mean, they do practice it because there can be some really important times when you need it, but if you just dedicated a little bit more practice to that two-point conversion, you'd assume you could get the percentage up even more than it already is, over 50%, but... Yeah, maybe yeah. let's not say stuff like that. Maybe, maybe there's <laughs> some teams who practice it a lot, and we don't know. I, I, I can definitely imagine, like, a dorky Tom Brady, Aaron Rodgers team practicing it like yeah. freaking clockwork, but I, I gotcha. Um... So let's let's take a let's take a pause for uh, a commercial break. Oh, we don't have any advertisers. Sorry. No, let's take a pause for a second and put some context or some summary to the episode itself. So we're not going to summarize it to the point where you shouldn't watch it. Um, but tell me if I remember this right. So he opens up, makes some jokes about his own personal life, wishes he he'd had a his own more of his own rules for life. Right. Um, then he kind of introduces the concept of the pull the goalie. And as he goes on, he's sort of spinning this narrative that, um, you know, we're all better off in all aspects of our life to kind of not trust our perceptions on any of the choices that we make. Right. I mean, that, that's sort of his argument. And it's the argument of many of his episodes. This is the episode where he kind of attacked it head on. Right. Um, I mean, revisionist history, the whole point is things you misunder, misremember or misunderstand, right? right. So or, it, it, yeah. it's right. a good metaphor for kind of what he likes to do in general, but yeah. really gets down and dirty with it this time. Yeah, so... Um, there, there's one really weird example at the end with Home Invasion that we won't get into because... Uh, it, when we tried to explain it last, it didn't work at all. Um, 
we, we recorded 15 minutes of this podcast and we literally derailed it on one stupid example right. about you, you they, they go they break it down beautifully in the episode we're encouraging you to listen to the episode you'll you'll hear yeah. it it involves Idris Elba everybody loves Idris Elba George Clooney thinks he should be James Bond right. uh, Just, a lot of people thought he should be James Bond and I was totally on board with him being James Bond but now he's like a hundred I mean like <laughs> Like, if you think Daniel Craig is getting a little old to be James Bond, I mean, Idris Elba is, is he's got to be the same age. They've got to be the same age, I would think. I, I, don't, I don't know. It, well, I, let's, let's not pontificate James on people's Bond. ages we don't know. Yeah, no, just like, yeah, we're, we're armchair experts for days. <laughs> let's just, like, I don't know. I think you'd make a great James Bond. I, 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 I do. I, I think... Uh, I think everybody agrees. There's no way you just wouldn't Michael make a Michael Fassbender would be. He really pretty good. much played evil James Bond in uh, what was that? The he just did the movie where he was the bad guy in Hobbs and Shaw. Yeah, the new Fast and the Furious. Oh thing. yeah, yeah, the one yeah. with Lawrence Olivier. <laughs> anyway, okay. Do you think we should still break down like the Sam Harris's opinion on it and just time to listen to the situation before? <clears throat> yeah. So. What he what Mac Level does is he slowly reveals to you less and less agreeable experts on topics, right. and essentially um, they highlight an Idris Elba movie in which um, he's sort of a home invader, and he's done the classic thing of cutting all the you know the telephone wires, and there's there's no escape right. uh, essentially. And Sam Harris, who is whew, love him or hate him, he sparks a lot of controversy in the world today. But he he basically posits this theory that. Um, during a home invasion, if a parent with a child in the house yeah. has any opportunity at all to escape, and let's say, again, that you can't call anybody, you can't grab your child and run, right. you, know, you just have a second where the bad guy is away from you, you should sprint out of your own house. Right. And that sounds crazy. It's not something I would want to do. I would consider myself a failed father if I left my child uh, inside the house with, with you know, an, an invader. But he breaks down in a really brilliant way that Malcolm Gladwell ultimately agrees with on why that really is the safest bet, not only for yourself, but for the chance of rescuing your child as well. Right, right. I mean, it, it, essentially, and this this is kind of where I, where my head jumped to cognitive dissonance, because I almost think in this example, not so much with the other ones, but in this one, it's a little better explanation because there's not we don't have a piles of statistical data, right? right. Piles of statistical data would lead to agreeableness, right? Are you agreeable? This is more so, in my opinion, cognitive dissonance, where uh, Sam Harris essentially argues, you know, this, you know, Idris Elba won't separate himself from the kids, so he has control of the kids. She has no way to call anybody. She obviously can't physically take on Idris Elba. So, uh, the, the, essentially, the logic is, listen, this guy's crazy. You have a crazy person in your house, right? He is clearly trying to mess with you. If you all stay, things are going to go wrong, right? There's right. no way... He's, he's taking care of everything so that if you hang out, you have zero chance of, of this ending well. If you just take off, if you just run to go get the police, A, he's going to be completely free. Like, he's not going to know what to do, right? This is not, would not be something even a psychopath would plan for. And, and B, you had no good opportunity before. He clearly wants something to do with you. The likelihood he's going to do something to the kids before you get back with the police is at least lower than the zero chance you have. If you stay around, if you hang around, so uh, that's essentially the argument that Sam Harris makes, and that kind of leads into the cognitive dip cognitive dissonance because we don't even have kids, and it still makes no sense. Like that still is like, oh my goodness, I couldn't imagine doing that. Even though when you break it down, you're like, wow. I mean, logically, that probably is the right thing to do. Right, and logic is the right word. It's almost like it almost feels like Aristotelian in some sort of like like mental game where you're like just thinking through all these things so quickly like okay what kind of invader comes at my house at midnight oh the kind of invader who expects to find me right oh does that invader want to mess with me or my children oh it seems like they want to mess with me right they've given me this chance to escape let me escape and get the police which they won't expect like it, it, it's, it feels wrong, and again, this, we're not building a sports metaphor in order to teach you this lesson about home invasion. This is just yet another really brilliant example right. that they come up with where what we should do in a situation is not necessarily what we feel like we should do right. in a situation. Two yeah, totally I mean, different things. Every, if you pull the goalie with 11 minutes, everyone's going to be like, what are you? Everyone who knows hockey is going to be like, what are you doing? If you leave your ch children at home with a psychopath, 
every parent is going to be like, what are you doing? It is, it is pulling the goalie of, uh, of these traumatic situations, of, of a thriller movie. Yeah, and if you have heard any weird whimperings in the background, that is yeah. brought to you by the lovely dog, Cricket. Yeah. Uh, we did not name her Cricket. That was her previous owner. That is not a shout-out oh, to... Oh, boy, she's on the table now. And it's always... <laughs> she's on the table. It's always Sunny in Philadelphia character. That, that is not the point of the name Cricket. Um, she's adorable as all get-out. But dogs, and I found this to be true, uh, don't transfer on a podcast format. Right. Dogs really don't come through. We tried asking her how she felt about pulling the goalie, and she licked my face. So, couldn't use it on the podcast. Oh, yeah. But we did take that to be a positive summation right. overall. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So, reviews, five stars from Cricket. Yeah, absolutely. So, this brings us to why is this podcast so special. Um, I think we've talked about that a little bit, but I, what I want to get into with that is... Oh my gosh. She's wild yeah. right now. She's, something changed with Cricket in the last yeah. couple minutes. Um, what I, we wanted to get into with this, or what I wanted to get into with this, was you and me specifically. Right. Like, there's a reason that us, with our strangely analytical uh, father and grandfather, um, kind of were drawn to this. Where we're a little bit more logical of people than... Um, and, and that, that sounds like I'm really bragging. That's not really what I mean. It's almost that ability to look at things. And you, you have it, I think, way more than I do. And I think you'd even admit to that. You know, you do tend to look at things by the raw data. And you, you call a lot of things in your life illogical or silly or stupid. Um, simply because, it, you know, it doesn't make logical or mathematical sense. Right. So, you know, I think there's, there's a reason this fit with us more than it might fit with other people, but, right. but I don't want to convince people it just worked for us. Like I want to try to explain why that philosophy might be good to adopt for everybody. I, I don't know. Am I, am right, I talking right. too much? I mean, the logic is never, I, I don't think, I think logic is never a bad thing to, to not take into heart, right? I'm not saying everyone should make every decision perfectly logically, right? That's not the argument I'm trying to make, but I think knowing, knowing the logical decisions in every situation and being able to weigh the emotional with the logical is something that everyone should just do, right? Yeah. And I don't think anyone should be perfectly logical either. I mean, Sheldon Cooper is an intolerable character. Uh, like, you shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't be always logical. You know, we have emotion for a reason. We have feelings for a reason. The dorky second male lead on the popular sitcom The Big Bang Theory. I'm pretty sure everyone knows who he is. But I wanted to try my NPR explanation voice. Oh, okay. Okay, no, that was a good point. He's, he's a little bit intolerable. Keep going. I, I'm sorry. Right, so, I mean, my, my point is, at the, the bare minimum, people should make the attempt to understand both the logical and the emotional of, of certain situations. And on certain situations, such as, you know, the sports metaphor, pulling the goalie, it, sometimes it just bears out to be hard to argue with, you know yeah, what I'm saying? Yeah, no, and I think that that's kind of, I think you're really getting at it too, which is that I'm an incredibly emotional person, at least by our family standards. I mean, I, I'm very emotional, I, I act, I think, I feel a lot of feels in the day, as the kids say, um, but... Even I would like to fall back on logic, not because I think it's more important or it's more beautiful or it's more... It, it's because it's the only system by which we can kind of communicate, right? Like, like my emotional experience is going to be different than everyone else's at all times. Right. And I don't want to make this too big, but that's sometimes why it can be so scary, um, you know, when you hear artists or, or people just always talking about oh, well, that's your felt experience, and that's my felt experience. Like, yeah, felt experiences matter, absolutely. Right. But, like, we can communicate on a shared logical sense. When you, when you can find someone who agrees, okay, this, this matters logically, then it, it can really change your life, or it can really just, I don't know, tear down those walls to, to being the only way we might actually be able to communicate with each other. Right. I mean, the other argument that I would make that, that this stuff is very important is, I mean, logic can actually help taper some of your overly emotional or, or doubt. You know, as human beings, we have a lot of doubt, right? That doubt is, and it's a big cause of anxiety, and it's a big cause of depression, uh, is our doubt in the things we think, feel, and make, and a big thing, the decisions we make, right? So if you can understand the logic behind decision-making, the statistics, the... Um, when there are certain aspects of your life that, hey, this just flat out makes more logical sense. And if you embrace that to some degree, 
that tapers that anxiety, right? That tapers that doubt because you can at least lean back on the fact that, hey, I may not love this decision, but I can, I'm not sitting here doubting like, oh crap, is this the right decision? Should I be doing this? I, I can lean back on the fact that, okay, this was the intelligent decision to make, even when it doesn't work out for you, right? Even, so to, to circle back real quick to the hockey metaphor, just because it's statistically beneficial for you to pull your goalie with five minutes left in the game down by one goal, that doesn't mean that you will win that game anywhere near 50% or more than 50% of the time. You're still down one goal with five minutes left in the game, right? The, the whole point of it is, hey, if you pull your goalie with five minutes left, you become 20% likely to win this game, as opposed to if you don't, if you wait till one and a half minutes left, you are only 10% likely to win this game, right? So that's the big thing that you have to lean back on is the fact that even when your decision, if you make an emotional decision and it does not pan out for you, you're going to blame yourself for that decision. If you make a logical decision, and it doesn't work out for you, you can psychologically fall back on the fact that I I made a decision I can be comfortable with because it was the best thing for me, right? It was the most likely thing to get me out of the situation, even if it didn't. Right. And so this brings me this brings me to a really interesting little for 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 a small span of time I was listening to this stoic philosophy podcast. Basically, they were like five-minute little clips of stoic thinking and trying to think more stoically. And um, there was this there was this kind of woman who was in a former gambler that he showcased on this one episode, and he basically explained this book she wrote. Now, I'm going to butcher, butcher all the information because I, I don't I couldn't find it on my phone, but um, basically the idea was she said we need to stop thinking of decisions as always morally right and morally wrong. It was more about what actions am I going to take. I'm going to choose the actions I take based on what is most logically going to occur because of those actions, right? Like, like it's almost like, okay, I'm, I'm taking that blame part out of my decision making. I didn't do this because it felt right or, you know, I wanted to, I, I did it because I clearly wanted this outcome and based on the information I had, the best way to execute to that outcome was was these steps, right? So you're almost detaching yourself from the choices at all. Right. And I think that's why it does affect you less personally is because when you detach yourself from the process, it's like, no, no, no. I did that because it was without question the, the smartest thing to do. Right. Had nothing to do with how instinctual or talented I am. Right. And I think I think the th that's a great point with the framing, how we frame morality becomes a big part of that, right? Because... We, we have a perception of what we consider to be moral. However, if you think about it, so like the, the back to that home invader, the Idris Elba example, it, it seems for every, every, almost every human being, I would imagine, would think of the decision to just take off and, and quote unquote abandon your kids as being objectively not the moral decision, right? I mean, it, it doesn't sound, it sounds blatantly like an amoral decision. However, if you you could easily make the argument that doing the thing that statistically would probably be the best thing for you and your children is the moral decision to make. Or, you know, it, 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 at that point, you would either say that is the moral decision or that morality is not relevant to that question. Right. Maybe I think it would be more, more trying to take morality out of the question. Um, but I mean, certainly, you the the making that logical decision, at the very least, you'd want to say is not amoral, right? Sure, it's, sure, sure. No, no, right, it's, right. It's not the bad thing to do. Right. So, we've been we've been talking a lot, and let's let's start to give the the listener maybe some more concrete examples. Uh, I think COVID could turn into a really interesting example. Okay. I think the example that Malcolm Gladwell gave about other types of home invasion, in which the person whose home was invaded, they, they owned a firearm, which was ultimately the point he kind of got to in that um, episode. You know, so, so there are some real tangible, political, national examples of where maybe what feels right in a situation has nothing to do with the outcome that you want. So let's start with the, with the uh, basically gun safety one or the however you want to call it, um, firearm one. Yeah, do you want to? I actually don't. 
I'm thinking off the top of my head, I don't remember this exact example, so you're gonna have to break this one down. Yeah, yeah, so so essentially, it was the stand your ground law in Florida. Oh, right, right, right. Right, so the concept that, of course, in your mind, the moral decision is stand your ground. As a good country, you know, bumpkin myself, I feel that, uh, Josh is laughing because that doesn't describe me at all, but it is where I grew up and I, I am proud of it in some, to some degree. And there's, and there's nothing that's not laughable at the term country bumpkin. Oh, it's just a funny term, yeah, for sure. No, but the idea that um, it is moral to stand your ground, that's the right thing to do, right? That it's, it's a good thing to stand up for your, um, you know, your house. It's your house, you need to protect it. And this idea that owning a gun or owning a firearm in that situation is going to make you feel more safe. It's going to help you protect your land. It's going to help you protect your home. Right. Despite the fact that without question, more homeowners with guns are shot. So that's an important statistic. Remember, it's not the people breaking in who get shot because that would obviously be the whole point. Right. It's the people who own the guns, purchase the guns legally, everything's up above board, and get themselves shot because they own the guns much higher rate than in areas where stand your ground laws are not present, uh, is essentially the argument he was trying to make. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and that's, I mean, I've I've been all, uh, I actually researched this quite a bit and had known quite a a bit about this before listening to that episode just because I've been all over the place with my gun uh, beliefs politically, but we're not getting into the whole political discussion at the moment, but... Just like your aim. <laughs> We've never spent any time firing. I don't know. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I mean, and it's completely logical to think about, too, right? Because the vast, I mean, we, we spent this whole time talking about this Egypt Elba example, but this is a movie, and the likelihood you are in this situation is essentially like, you know, a tenth of a hundredth of a percent. Like, this, like, this Egypt Elba stuff almost never happens. It's, it's people break in to steal your TV, right? That's why people break into houses over 95, 99% of the time. Yeah, steal your guns, steal your TV, steal steal something quick, expensive that they can sell pretty easily, yes. Exactly, so that's why people break into your house. A lot of times they take guns because they want to be threatening or they want to be able to protect themselves if you have a gun and that's where you resolve the problem, right? If If somebody breaks into your house and you come down with a baseball bat, are they going to shoot you? Are they going to commit murder? No, they're going to run out. The, they're going to run out of your house, right? With and, whatever they're holding, right? And the, they're going to they're going to just going to try to steal something and get out. If you walk down with a gun, guess what? You're almost certainly not trained with a gun. I mean, some of you might be, but the average American isn't. Full like combat trained with a gun. Right. You're not going to immediately just walk downstairs and shoot the person sitting in the living room. They're going to now fear for their lives because they have a gun pointed at them. They're going to shoot their gun at you, and you're most. I mean, statistically, and this is not just. A theoretical situation. This is what he talks about, and this is what statistically bears out. Is that you know right? Yeah. And we didn't mean to put you on edge with your political beliefs. You could want to own a firearm for a totally different subset of reasons, right. and that's another argument, another time, another discussion, another Malcolm Gladwell podcast, likely. Right. Um, <laughs> but the 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 point we're trying to make is: what if what if you purchase that firearm? And, and I got to stop saying you. What if a person right. purchased that firearm? For home defense. What if that was their goal? Right. They, they wanted to protect their family. A total, totally noble and honorable decision, right? Everyone can agree. What if they could prove, what if we could prove to them or anyone could prove to them that they were their house was statistically safer without that firearm, right? right. That's the argument Malcolm Gladwell's making. That's the argument we're making. We're not suggesting that, you know, your, your beliefs uh, in guns as a whole, please just don't feel attacked for no random reason. The, the point is just, it, do you want to listen to the data or not? Are you willing to listen to logic or, or not? Right, right, and exactly. And I mean, it's, it's, it's about that. Oh, go ahead. And no, and it's really the same situation, right? Because if you meet up with your buddies, especially in areas where we grew up, it would be hard to say you're getting rid of your, your, your gun under your... Um, you know, under your socks in your top top of your drawer. Like that's a, that's a normal part of life in the Midwest. And to say that you kind of have figured out that you'd be safer without it, well, one, it'd be a weird conversation to get into anyway, but like, do you know what I'm saying? I'm saying this, so that social pressure, that agreeableness, that cognitive right. dissonance, it's all still there. Yeah, no, no. I mean, that's, that, that is a good example. I did not, uh, I completely forgot about it before we we jumped into that conversation, and I mean, it's, it's, it's a perfect example of somebody, you know, your assumption is that, you know, you have a 
relatively easy to use weapon that you can kill somebody with or at least maim them from a decent distance without getting close to them, that objectively makes your house, like your, I mean, I keep saying, you know, we said house, but we're really talking about your life and your family's life. It, you know, your assumption would be, okay, I am safer because of this, almost for sure. But then when the statistics bear out, and when I give you that example of like, that's what's honestly more likely to happen, and the statistics 100% bear that out, and he goes over the statistics, and they're pretty easy to look up, the fact that having that gun actually makes you, your life, at much higher risk, because someone's going to shoot somebody with a gun, they're not going to shoot somebody who comes downstairs with a baseball bat. Right. Right. Or was there something else? I mean, what else do you want to get into? Well, no, because so then we, we, you could almost start to simplify this to an embarrassing like level. And I, I don't necessarily want to do that, but mm. th there does come a point where the, the following the science conversation with COVID, no matter how weird the science like sounds or is, like the concept a year ago of putting a mask over your face didn't make any sense to me at all. Like I was one of the people, those first few trips to the grocery store where... I only put the mask on due to social pressure and now nine months later, you know, I won't step into a room with more than four people without a mask on. Like, like, like there, there's just, there's a, there's an obvious argument to this that listening to well-researched scientific data pretty much in all instances is what we should do. I mean, right. and I mean, that's the, we're, that's really a good conversation on just general cognitive dissonance and jet, like, you know, more, and the the COVID example is just such a difficult one because there are so many steps and it's been such a weird timeline of what we actually, you know, what knowing things for sure in terms of statistical data has been really difficult throughout this whole thing. And so uh, that's been a little, little more difficult to nail down. But it, it, there's definitely a conversation about our cognitive dissonance between what we do know scientifically and what people want to claim or what people want to just want to do in general. Right. Okay, so uh, what's the what's what's the upshot here? What's the silver lining? What and I think that our answers here are going to be incredibly different, which will probably get at the heart of what makes us who we are. Um, you know, what is so good about us being so wrong all the time? Like, like what what's what's so nice about that? Right. I mean, well, it, it depends who you are, but firstly, like, it's just kind of. Sometimes it's just cool to see how wrong you are about something, you know? It, it's just, especially in something that, that, you know, obviously it stinks more when it's some really, really big, you know, existential stuff, which I guess you could extrapolate this to. But more specifically, like when, you, when you're shown how smart it is to pull a goalie halfway through a third period, as opposed to the last 90 seconds like you've always been used to your whole life, you know, there's something cool about that, uh, about learning something that is so intrinsically false in your normal line of thinking uh but to to broaden out or to you know real life it a little bit yeah no no, no. I, I, I sorry i keep going no i mean for me it's just kind of like there this is all upshot to me like just kind of being shown it's okay to be disagreeable about some of this stuff which might be where you're kind of going a little bit but but for me to it's it's almost reinforcement that like listening to logic, listening to statistics can can really play out in some really not only interesting but useful ways. You know. Yeah. You guys just have to listen to revisionist history because what I'm really struggling to do is to separate this from all the other amazing points he makes through all of his episodes because mm -hmm. it all kind of comes back to this. Right. Like it really does. Like. He makes such good points about hiring people and why you should hire them and why you shouldn't hire right. them and why there's randomness to the universe that you can't predict for. And like the, the parts of this that are so interesting to me are so void of the sports math. It's kind of funny. Like, right, yeah, yeah. It's, so fu like it's, it's weird that, that that example is so perfect because the math works out so well. Right. And in every other example I want to sort of end with or talk about has no mathematical like fact to it at all. But it's just the fact that if you ever find yourself in a position of leadership at all, like counterintuitive thinking, I, you, I know everyone goes to conferences all year long trying to think more counterintuitively. Like it, it's at this point, thinking outside the box has become a joke, but it's become firmly inside the box. <laughs> yeah, right. But it, it is really that whole point of like, just his thought in the most recent season of, 
you know, why do we promote people based on their ability to do something that isn't the job we're promoting them <laughs> right. for? Like, yeah. like, like the fact that good salesmen become managers and that's just idiotic because being a good salesman has nothing to do with being a good manager. Right. Um, and you're losing your best salesman to be right. put in positions right. that they're so not you, nearly as good at. Take, yeah, yeah, you take someone who generates $100,000 worth of money for your company and then you just, like, it's, it's insane. Um, the way we just think through everything. But I think the upshot for me is, and this is going to go back on something we talked about in the last podcast a little bit. Um, it's actually the psychology. It's the habit making. The mm -hmm. fact that literally you could write down on a piece of paper the 10 things throughout the course of a day that you want to, to do to live like a health, like it's just like, let's call it what it is, like a happier, healthier life or whatever, whether it's waking up an hour early, walking, exercising, like whatever, all this stuff, not eating crappy food, whatever. And all these things that as individual concepts actually bring you a little bit of pain or frustration or something you don't seemingly want to do. It's, it's just that delayed gratification thing of, oh, I'm actually going to live a happier, healthier life by consistently doing things that my eyes tell me I don't want to do. Right? It's like using cognitive dissonance to your total advantage right. of like literally doing everything that you didn't, you wouldn't mm. think you wanted to do. Um, and how like, just, just how, um, how happy you can be because that, how you define whether it was a good day has nothing to do with what you picture a good day being. Right. If that makes sense. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, and that, I mean that it hopefully y'all listened to last uh, podcast too, where we delved in, we dove into the delaying of gratification a little bit. You know, we're kind of building, you know, on last week's, you know, episode. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, it's did. almost like we did this on purpose, but we right. did not. Right. We, you know, we should put together, you know, at the end of this, like our 12, our 12 uh, I think it's going to sound delay, like you know? one really similar rule. D right. Just <laughs> delay gratification, um, you know, fight cognitive dissonance. Um, be more uh, disagreeable. You know, we're, they're really going to start to step on each other. Well, but. no, okay, so we can actually, we, we, we actually can get a little bit more out of this because we do find ourselves oftentimes in rooms being the most disagreeable people in those rooms. And I think a really good point that um, is brought up in the podcast is there's a difference between being disagreeable and being an asshole. Right. You know yeah, what yeah. I mean? Like, and sometimes we do not flirt that line very well. Like there's, there's a huge difference and we know that difference. The example given is one of the two um, analysts who, who wrote up the whole pull the Goldie idea, did the math on it and are the two, um, you know, stockbrokers or, or investment yeah, fi fi bankers, financial, financial, yeah, financial advisors, advisors yeah, whatever um, they do. One of those guys, uh, he has an aunt who always asks him when she should convert her money to the euro because she goes on European vacations every year mm. um, to get the most financial gain back because of the difference in, in the, uh, you know, what, what, what each thing is worth. Whatever <laughs> cu currency is worth at that time. And basically there is no, he admits that there is no way of knowing that. It's too, it's too unpredictable right. it's two minute by minute so instead of constantly trying to hit her over the head with the math that says no listen andy you don't understand this is impossible to quantify like a jerk would he always gives her just a you know a random date <laughs> like do it may 23rd you'll be so happy if you do it may 23rd <laughs> and uh he's doing that because he has no idea. May 23rd might work out to be the best day to change your currency. It might be the worst day. But, you know, he does. you don't need to be so disagreeable that you're a jerk about it. It's just the willingness to think completely counterintuitively because you know logically it's the right thing to do. Right. Disagreeable, it, it's, it's hard to define because it doesn't necessarily, when you're saying that, you're not even necessarily talking about being disagreeable with other people. You're, I mean, it's almost disagreeable with, with your own internal logic and disagreeing, disagreeable with, with instinct, disagreeable with, I mean, it's, it's not just like, don't agree with anything anybody says, right? I mean, right. so, I mean, that's the, I guess, important thing to point out if you're just going to be like walking out trying to argue with everybody about everything at all times. Right. So is that is that 
Are we wrapping up now? What do you want to use? Is there something else you want to talk about? You want to hit it from a different angle? What do you got? <laughs> I don't know what the angle is going to be, but it's got to be acute. It's, <laughs> we got to minus 90 degrees. No, I mean, I think, I, I, I think um, we couldn't urge you enough to read Malcolm Gladwell's books. We couldn't urge you enough to listen to Revisionist History. Right. Um, but go slowly because we might, uh, we might talk about one of his books or more of his podcasts in the future. So, you know. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Slow <laughs> for us. Yeah. Wait for us to get there. That's what. We, that's what you should do. You should start with twelve uh, rules for life. I know it feels weird to do it, but <laughs> it's actually the most logical, best idea for you is to just wait until we may or may not do another one of his episodes. But uh, we're of course joking. You're not. You're gonna want to watch, listen to all of his episodes once you listen to a couple of them. They're they're so good. And yeah. there's something there's something innate about a person. You know, we, we love to be shown something wildly different than our preconceived notions. Like, and that's literally, you know, this is, it's a weird kind of almost a meta podcast of his because that's kind of like we've said what his show is about, right? Revisionist history is kind of redefining how you look at the world. And this is just a really specific episode about redefining how you look at very specific things based on very specific statistics. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a really good podcast to start with. So I think it could actually really provide some great insights for the rest of his episodes. Right. So I think you yeah, actually could true. be a better, more informed listener. Right. You understand you why he, I mean, it's a great example of why he thinks the way he thinks, right? And what, therefore why he wrote the books he wrote, therefore why he does this particular podcast with this particular structure is just because that is the way he thinks. He loves to think that way. And I think you will too. Or I mean, everybody I've, you know, everybody who starts to get into his stuff loves it, right? right? I mean, I haven't met anyone who who has most anything negative to say about the guy. No, he just has a way of making you feel involved in the logic and the story in a way that I don't think most people do. Like, right. I, he, he relates to conservative Christians. He relates to completely liberal academics. He relates right. to anarchists. He relates <laughs> to the stable... Like, he just... He is a little bit of everything and a little bit of an enigma all at the same time. Right. I mean, a, a great way to look at his podcast is everybody is wrong sometimes. Right. And, and I mean, that's that's really what he shows. And I mean, he he proves, you know, he slams liberal academics through many of his podcasts that, that go against what they're seeing. You know, uh, it, it's he's all over the place just because he wrote for The New Yorker. Don't write him off as a... <laughs> Well, yeah, and I think sometimes you'll listen you'll listen to him and it's told so well that you almost don't know if you've thought that thought before and just didn't have the strength right. to go down that path or if he just taught it to you in that moment and right. it feels so obvious that you're sort of um, in love with it. But yeah, absolutely. Like, cannot express enough um, just how, uh, how awesome he is and how, how great it would be if you all listened. Right. Because he needs it. Right. He we don't it. need it. He needs it. Right. Yeah. I mean, if you share this, if you share this podcast with like, you know, 12, 13 million people, maybe we can get them on in a couple of ways. You That'd know? be great. Well, just, yeah. I, you know how hard it is to call famous people to do your podcast? Like, I, I just wanted to reach out, but I, there's nowhere to reach out to. All right. Yeah. We'll find him. We'll, don't worry. We'll find yeah, him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Have a good day, everybody. Remember, we have no interest in changing what you think, just how we all think. Have a good day.